Couch Wisdom. Couch Wisdom. Hey, this is Jordan Rothline from Red Bull Music Academy. Welcome to Couch Wisdom, Red Bull Radio's podcast presenting the best of RBMA's lecture archive. A classically trained prodigy who began playing the cello at age seven, Philadelphia native Larry Gold has worked on countless hit records over the past four decades. Throughout the 60s, 70s, and early 80s, he was a member of MFSB, the legendary house band for Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff's Philadelphia International Records, and helped shape the sound of Philadelphia as it came to be known via classic recordings by the OJs, Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, Teddy Pendergrass, Billy Paul, and others. By the late 90s, Gold came into his own as the go-to string arranger of the modern R&B and hip-hop era. His orchestral contributions to Brandy and Monica's 1998 smash The Boy Is Mine set off a series of genre-defining recordings, including classics by The Roots, Erica Badu, Jay-Z, Justin Timberlake, Jill Scott, Common, and Kanye West. In this episode of Couch Wisdom, recorded at the 2018 Red Bull Music Academy in Berlin, Larry Gold discussed learning and making music in Philadelphia, the Philly sound, creating emotional depth with string arrangements, and his compositional process. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please stay tuned after the lecture. For now, enjoy this bit of Couch Wisdom. Won't you please welcome Mr. Larry Gold. Thanks so much for being here. It's great. Um, this was kind of impromptu, you with the cello, this here this morning. This is kind of what you do every morning, though, right? I play all day when I'm not working on someone's arrangement. Mm-hmm. So music is my daily bread. Mm-hmm. How many hours a day do you practice? I'd say minimally two, but maybe eight at times. Um, you know, there was, there was a period of about 20, 25 years when I didn't play my cello. I used to play on record, records, obviously, and I kept myself in great shape. But then when I opened the studio, which I think is about 25 years ago, and I started doing arranging, a couple of, a couple of arrangements every week, I really didn't have the time to devote to the cello. So every time I went to play it, I felt like I was a stranger to it. Mm-hmm. So by, that feeling was, made me pretty depressed. Yeah. So I sort of put it aside for a while. I mean, I would pick it up like I, I picked it up. I told you before, when the roots entered my life for a while, I, you know, I went up and I would take it out every once in a while because they would like me to take it out. So, I mean, you know, I, I did some live performing on occasion. Right, right. Um, like with Jay-Z. Right, exactly. Well, we'll get to some of these things, um, these notable events in your career. Um, I want to start actually with a, with a piece of music um, that we talked about a little bit. Now, this is an arrangement of yours for an artist named Jill Scott. And um, This record was completely done in my, my studio. In your studio? Yeah. Okay. The, the, two, the, two, the 2011 record that we're about to play. Yes. Okay. Yes. So just to sort of reset, even though we have Larry playing a little bit this morning, um, let's hear something that he arranged for Jill Scott. The track is called Hear My Call. It's from 2011. Okay, that was Jill Scott, Hear My Call 2011, produced by J.R. Hudson, string arrangements by Larry Gold. We wanted to play this song because the elements are so sparse. It's really just piano voice and the strings. Tell us about your approach to a piece like this. Well, you know, strings are emotional. And this was a very emotional song, and I thought it was a good way to start. Um, You know, I love Jill. All I can tell you is that the, the song still moves me to this day, and I've heard it a lot. You know, in my lifetime, it's something I actually, you know, I mean, I like it. Jill was in the studio recording, and I have a little room off to the side, and I was working on the arrangement, and she would, like, knock on the door and say, how's it going? And I'd say, it's going, and I wouldn't play it for her. And then I finally played it for her, and she was crying, you know, and I said, well, let's do it. You know, and that was the end of it, you know. And then she performed it a lot, and one time she asked me to fly to California to conduct, and... I said, you don't need a conductor, it's only, it's only a string quartet, you know. Um, she said, I want you to fly, and I don't like flying, even though I flew to Germany for this. Um, and so I didn't fly, and um, I don't remember where, what, it was for some B 
big event out in California. But um, she's used it, a lot of occasions, she's used it when she wants to be more intimate. Yeah. Um, you I mean, this song is like such an expression of, of vulnerability. When you get a client, you know, obviously this is an uh, artist that you worked closely with for a number of years, so it's a different type of relationship. Well, I've known Jill since she was yeah. in high school. Yeah. Um, she grew up in Philadelphia. So one of, one of the things about me being in Philadelphia is that a lot of the artists that you're going to play today all grew up in Philadelphia. So we were sort of a homegrown unit mm-hmm. of um, musicians. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's, you said it's all sort of by feel, but when you're writing the arrangement, something like this, I mean, you know, you notice just as a neophyte, as a layperson who doesn't study music necessarily um, formally, you know, you hear just the, the, the strings follow the cadence of her singing at different points. I mean, you know, whatever counter melodies that you're sort of exploring, I guess, is that apply in this type of situation or is it really just something that's more instinctive? This was more instinctive. This was out of, um, I just wanted to add an emotional context to the song. And um, this was an easy song to do, even though it took me a minute. To, to come to terms with it. You know, I, I don't like doing too much, you know, because I think too much takes, you know, you can go hear symphony, you know, or go listen to the cello, you know, or something. So, and it's a pop record, really. So, I don't know, I just think the mood is good. Where, where in Philly did you grow up? I grew up in a neighborhood um, that was pretty poor neighborhood. It's in Nor- it's called North Philadelphia. Same neighborhood Jill grew up. Same neighborhood McFadden and Whitehead grew up. Same neighborhood Teddy Pendergrass grew up. Um, we all grew- yeah. I mean, it was a a lot of musicians, a lot of singers. It was a. My father had a store. And I we lived up top of the store. In the back of the store, I used to play my cello all day long. At what age did you start on the cello? Six. I started guitar first. There was a toy guitar in, this to- in my father's store, and I brought it in the back. I learned how to tune it. It was actually an Elvis Presley guitar, which I should have kept because it's worth a lot of money today. It was one of those little toy plastic guitars, and um, it came with a pitchfork, to- and it came with a little um, color instruction book, how to tune the guitar, and it actually had, um, had a couple of songs in the back and um, I taught myself how to play a few Elvis songs. Mm-hmm. And um, my mother took me to guitar lessons. Two blocks away or three blocks away, there was a little music store in the early 50s. And the guitar teacher, after going through a few books with me, said, you got to get him a violin. You know, he's got hands, he's got fingers, <laughs> you know, he's got ears, you know. And so my mother went to school, and I was too young, really, to get an instrument, but they took me in this room. And I'm a very small, I'm small, I'm petite, you know, I'm not a big Petite's man. Petite's a good word, yeah. Okay, I'm not a big man. So if they would have had a bass in that room, I would have taken the bass. But the biggest instrument, string instrument they had in that room was the cello. So I came home, the cello was bigger than I was at the time. That's and, and you stuck with this and eventually were classically trained. You got into a pretty prestigious music school, I went correct? to conservatory, yeah. Right. Which Curtis, one was that? There's a great music school in Philadelphia. And... Um, I got in very young. I started studying with the cello teacher there, and I started studying with the counterpoint teacher there. And, and um, I was accepted, I think I was around 13 years old. I sort of stopped going to high school. I don't, I don't recommend it, but... Um, I, I think some people in this room already have passed that point. So <laughs> yeah, um, I know. you're in good company. Actually. But I don't recommend stopping learning. That's what I meant. You know? Actually, but in terms of actually stopping school, why did you quit school? Because I fell in love with music, and I knew music was going to be my life, and and um, I always I always liked to read anyway, and I figured I knew enough math. I don't. I was a little big shot. I don't know what to tell you, you know. And um, I started playing. Um, so I was playing around town, just like I played here. And uh, somebody asked for my phone number, and somebody that asked for my phone number was the contractor who contracted all the musicians in Philadelphia for the records. And in the early 60s in Philadelphia, there were some big records being made. Um, there was Camion Parkway, and as you told me, Art, Art, what? Arctic. Arctic, yeah. and there were a few other record labels that I'm not going to remember the name per se. But I started playing on records, and I fell in love with the process of making records right. and singing and all that kind of stuff. 
So um, you were already in love with pop music, though. It was completely. It was... I told you I learned Elvis Presley songs when I was six years old. So yeah, I was very fond. My mother used to say that with the guitar and me singing, I could have earned a living in any bar in that neighborhood. You know, just going to play and people would have thrown money at me, you know, so. And what was the name of the contractor who, who picked His you up the crowd? His name was Don Ronaldo, which uh, you don't see credits much on records anymore. But if you go back to the 60s and the 70s, on the back of every record out of Philadelphia, it said Don Ronaldo, Strings and Horns. Yeah. And I was part of that Strings and Horns. And that Strings and Horns eventually became a group called MFSB. What, um, how many... Pieces are composed in that string section back then? Six violins, two violas, two cellos. And then a full complement of horns, too. And what kind of musicians were, were converging to work together on all these sides? All different kinds. Some were conservatory trained, some were jazz players. It was a combination of people. Yeah. Most, most of them were, were formally trained classically, though. On the string side, you mean? On the string side. And then on the other side, it was mostly jazz so, players? Well, they, were, they were formally trained. Everybody's formally trained a little bit, but yeah, they were all jazz players. Yeah. And what did you notice in terms of just this... Um, I mean, I, I know you've said before that you kind of learned pop music from you know, an African-American perspective because you know, you're working on black music, essentially. Philadelphia is a black town, you know. It, they didn't make white records. They did. Cameo Parkway made some though, records. Right? Yeah. Yes, they did. Um, but I wasn't included. That was, that was like Bobby Rydell and, you know, people like that. I never cared for that, that end of it. I think my mother, my mother grew up listening to things that I never really identified with. A little bit I did, but not, not that much. I identified much more with the early records that I was listening to. I mean, like I told you, Stax Volt and the Motown records I loved. Um, and then the opportunity in Philadelphia was for me to participate on these R&B records. Yeah. So I got into it. I learned, they taught me gospel music. They taught me everything. So it's, it's as black and white musicians. You told me that there was a union for, for the black musicians and one separate for the white musicians, correct? In the early 60s, that's correct. That's how segregated life was in Philadelphia. Yeah. It's still too segregated in a way, but there's not a black and a white musician any, union anymore. So you're in the studio together with you know, people from maybe a different neighborhood or that you haven't necessarily encountered as a teenager. Um, you know, what else did you learn, not just musically, but just from being around this crew of, of people? Well, they were less formal than my background was, and I liked that a lot. I learned how to smoke reefer with them, you know. I mean, there were, there were so many things that I learned that I, I can't put in words. I, I just liked them. They liked me, and I liked them. They liked me for my knowledge, and I liked them for their knowledge. When did you start um, to encounter producers like Kenneth Gamble and Leon Huff? I was probably a teenager. I would say maybe 16, 17 years old, the first time I saw Leon Huff. He was in the record business early on. He did Phil Spector's records. He played piano on all those great Phil Spector records out of New York, and you know, like um, the girl groups and all that. Um, they used to have four piano players, three piano players in the room at one time, and Leon was one of the piano players. Leon played rhythm piano. Then there was somebody who played melodic. And, but I met, I met him then, and I met Bunny Sigler then. Um, Bunny Sigler used to sing opera, so he considered himself like a crossover. He was classical as well as R&B, but yeah, I mean, I got very involved. It was a way, first of all, it was a way I made my living too. You know, it wasn't as if I did it for nothing. That first of all, it was all cash. There was no checks. It was like really sort of like um, not lawful, I guess is the best way to say it. Off the books. Say Off the books. Off the books, yeah. Um, actually, there's one group that you did form, um, which I'm actually a little bit curious about before you got fully immersed into the soul scene. Well, it was both. But, I mean, well, it, was, it was at the same time, simultaneous. Same time. Okay. I had a bar band. I had a bar band before this group. Right. And my bar band used to do covers. I played bass, mm -hmm. electric bass. And my bar band used to do covers, but we mostly did like Sam and Dave, and we did um, Percy Sledge. You know, we did whatever we felt like doing. But they were, it, we weren't the only, we were in Philadelphia doing that, but I think there's probably a band in every city in the 60s, 
in every city we, we go to right. that we're doing that. Right. Well, how did, um, how did this group form, Good News? Well, Michael Bacon, who still plays music, and I had been friends since we were 11 years old. Michael played the cello, and I met him, we were both cellists in an all-city orchestra. Okay. And, um, you know, we were friends for years and years and years, and I think, I, as I told you yesterday, and I'll tell everybody here, I took way too many psychedelics, and um, I, ended up, I ended up not even knowing my name, which is not good, but um, this group was sort of like a healing process for me. I, I, I went away from my earlier friends, and, and I did this, and, you know, I didn't write and most of this stuff, but I played, and I, and I sang a little bit, and we went all over the world. I mean, we did the Isle of Wight Festival. We did, um, you know, many... It, it got very successful very quick. We were signed to Columbia Records. I hated the record we made. Yeah. Uh, I knew I didn't know anything about making records when we were in the studio making that record. They gave us a producer, and all he did was he, he, we just, whatever we did live, we did in the studio, and I knew that wasn't right. And I knew none of the songs would be hits because they didn't sound like um, the other records that were on the radio at the time. Well, what style are we talking about? We're talking about- It was folk music, yeah. I would say. I would classify it as more, it was a acoustic guitar and the cello, and I played bass too. And we both sang, and that was it. And we made a lot of noise. You know, I, I play a lot of cello, so, you know, I ate up a lot of space with the cello. Mm -hmm. And Michael had a good voice. Michael sounded a lot like James Taylor. Okay. To this day, he has a band with his brother, Kevin Bacon, who's world famous, uh, called the Bacon Brothers. And um, I don't go hear them because I don't like them, you know, so I don't know what to tell you. Sorry, Kevin. Yeah, yeah sorry, Kevin. But if they were in the room, I'd say the same thing. I, I think it's also interesting because, you know, you're relatively young and you're getting this major record deal, um, you know, as a young person sort of dealing with, you know, music industry is different now, but that same experience might be something that people in this room encounter in terms of like being involved in something from a relatively early age that they're not ready for. What do you think you can sort of impart as far as advice goes in dealing with a situation like that? Well, I never listened to anybody. Like I said before, I quit school early. I mean, I was really like, I thought I was like a street kid on my own, you know, in the 60s. And, and I'm not recommending that. This group had an agent, had a lawyer, had a manager, had all these people that told me what to do. It drove me crazy. And at the end, at the end of the week, if we made um, a couple thousand dollars, I'd go home with $200 or whatever it was. I don't even remember what it was. And I hated that. I hated that because, you know, I mean, it was just like, I know they made a living, and to this day I have a manager who got me this gig. So, I mean, it's part of reality. And, and a lot of times, a lot of times, you know, when you're little, you don't think they know what they're talking about. You know, you, you're like, oh, I know what I'm doing, and especially if you were a hippie you know, and, and involved in drugs, for sure, you, you didn't listen to anybody. The, the hippies had an expression, don't trust anybody over 30, you know? you know? So here I was all of like 16 or 17 years old, and all these, I had a manager um, who was probably in his 50s, and it was, it was not a good experience. You know, I met Clive Davis, and I met a lot of different people, a lot of different artists that I admired. Um, my, my goal before this record they, they kept on saying, oh, well, this is the next Simon and Garfunkel. You know, that's what CBS signed us. Oh, Columbia, oh, this is the next. So I said, oh, great. Well, why don't you get Paul Simon to produce the record then? So I, we actually had a meeting with him, but he wasn't, you know, he didn't even produce his own records. Well, the thing was, is I had already had a taste of what the Philly records were prior to this. So when I gave this up, I knew I could go back there. I called Don Ronaldo. I said, look, can I play cello again in, the, in, in your group? And he said, absolutely. Are you kidding? So I started working right away. And I also knew that Gamble and Huff and Tommy Bell, these guys knew how to make records, man. So you're going and doing sessions. Let's play something, actually, that I believe you played on. This is the OJ's Backstabbers from 1972. 
Leon Huff playing piano. Leon Huff playing piano. You're a part of the string section, arranged by Tom Bell, produced by Gamble and Huff. That's the mighty OJs, let me tell you, man. They're still kicking. I'm going to do an album with them before the end of the year. It might be their last album. Uh, Eddie, you don't have a picture. Eddie Levert is, he's got to be 78 years old now. And Walter's got to be in that, that general. I'm 70, and they're, old. they're eight to 10 years older than I am. The person who actually wrote the lyrics for that song was my good friend John Whitehead, who's not with us anymore. And he told me that he was living in what we called um, government housing. You, know, you call government housing, maybe, but we call the projects in Philadelphia. And he came home one day, and his, his wife, young wife, was outside talking to people sitting on the, uh, these two guys. And he went upstairs, and he got really mad. He went, and they smiled at him. He went upstairs, and he wrote, they smile in my face all the time. They went, take your place, the backstabbers. And... Um, he wasn't working for Gamble and Huff at the time, but Gamble and Huff had a little office in those days. And he went in and he sang, you know, he would say, this is the way he wrote a song. He would go, they're smiling. He would come in and just sing the melody to you. And um, he sang the melody to Huff and Huff started playing the piano and it turned out to be a big hit. And um, turned out to be a, a career maker for my friends, John and Gene. And that's the story I have about that. When you're going to work every day, you're going to, I guess, Sigma Sound Studios in Philly, right? And you are a part of these sessions. I mean, we could literally sit here for hours listening to different Philadelphia soul records that you were in on the sessions for. Did you have an idea at the time that this was something really special? I knew that was a hit. You know, it sounded, if you listen to it, it... it if you know the history of Motown and the history of commercial black music, this sounds like a hit. And um, I would go in and sometimes I would get the chills. You know, I would just sit there and listening back to, before we even put the strings or the horns on, I would just sit there and, and think about just how brilliant the vocals were and how the brilliant the rhythm was. I mean, that's Norman Harris playing guitar, who's no longer with us, who was my dear friend. I mean, these were great musicians. What about the arrangement of, of Tom Bell? I guess, I mean, you can either use this as you an know, example. You know, you can or, barely hear the strings. You well, know. But I think when you hear the strings, though, I mean, it's like yeah. this just wave of, of Tom something. Bell, Tom Bell was the, I used to say he was the black Burt Bacharach. He was the, the greatest young black arranger in the country at the time. And Atlantic Records knew it, um, as well as Columbia Records knew it. And, um, you know, they gave these guys carte blanche. In those days, these were street kids. They gave them whatever they wanted. They knew that they had something special in Philadelphia. Now you mentioned, okay, so you mentioned Norman Harris. Um, Ronnie talked, Baker, Ronnie Earl Baker, Young. Ronnie Baker, Earl Young. These are some of the, really the rhythm section, the, the backbone of a lot of these records. The backbone yeah. of these records. Yeah. These guys came to work and enjoyed themselves. They smoked a reefer and they played on this song. You know, they, that was what they did. How many, how many, songs in a day would you typically do as a rhythm section i bet i bet they did at least three four tommy bell would do even five or six a day uh, but it go late a late day you know but the it was all based on what you heard the piano do like in tommy bell's songs you know he was the leader he sat there and the guitar fit in and the bass fit in and the drums fit in and and they kept going and going and going and you know, Gamble would be in the booth and Gamble had the words or whoever was the, the lyricist would, and they would all, you know, the vocalists were never there. Mm -hmm. You know, very rarely were the vocalists there when they were cutting rhythm. The vocalists came in later and they rehearsed them. Mm -hmm. and, then the, and then the strings and horns came in last. And then it was mixed. Right. So you got a chance to see it almost to the fully formed at that point when you guys came in with the strings. Yeah. When I heard the record, when they were putting up the mix... To, for us to play, I heard the record. And it was always, you know, I mean, sometimes it was shitty, but most of the time it was brilliant. So I don't know what to tell you. What, what do you think you learned from uh, some of the other arrangers you, you worked under? Because you referred to these guys, Tom Bell, Norman Harris. Um, Ronnie, Bobby, Baker, Ronnie Baker arranged. Bobby uh, Martin. Bobby Martin. These are your mentors. 
Oh, my, and they are my mentors. Jack Faith, you can't leave Jack Faith. Yeah, I mean, Tommy Bell was the first one. He came in one day, and Gamble was hiring one arranger, and, and Tommy Bell said, I bet Larry can do better than him. And I, I never arranged for them, and Gamble said, okay, well, let's give him a try. And that's how I met McFadden and Whitehead. You know, at least that's how I started to work for McFadden and Whitehead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that was that. It was that, it was that simple. You mentioned MFS. But it was yeah. all based on my being in Philadelphia at the right time, yeah. the right place, with the right people, the right singers. This is what makes a hit record, you know? I mean, all of those elements fall together in one moment, and you get a record that lasts. This record is 45 years old that we just played. It's amazing, guys. Now, MFSB. You got to understand, I was a great player, though, you know, and I was we, a great we musician. Know. We know this. And, and yes. you know, and, and they loved me, you know. I mean, so, you know, they, I was like a lollipop that they showed off to people, you know. I mean. Well, you were the young guy, too, right? I so. was not only the young guy, but Ronaldo used to say to them, you could never play better than him in your whole life, you know. So. Now, MFSB, you mentioned, is this collective of musicians. So, Well, it was mother, father, sisters, brothers, which made it La Family, but it was also motherfucking son of a bitch, so, which made it real Philly. Yeah. Um, so that was the deal. And it was, it was a studio band, a studio orchestra. Now, Philadelphia wasn't the only orchestra like that. There was, you know, we talked before. There was a Chicago group, and there, there was a group in L.A., and there was a group in New York, but we were a collective of musicians. Let's show image number four, actually, just so we have an idea of who's around here. This is outside of Signal. I, I didn't show up that picture. I yeah, think you, I was a little too high. Yeah, you missed the, uh, the photo shoot. That's day, Don but... Ronaldo in the front with the big smile on. And that's Larry Washington, the great conga player, who leads off in that song. Mm-hmm. And that's Bobby Martin behind um, Don Ronaldo. Mm-hmm. And that's Richie Jones back there in the Afro. He just died this last week. None of, most of these people are not living anymore. Now, was it frustrating at any point to be kind of in the background as this sort of faceless yeah, group of musicians? Yeah, it was very frustrating. That's why I started arranging. I mean, we started with, the, I, was a big, I was already a big star before I, I mean, big star. Good news, I'm, I was doing real well, you know, I mean, but I, I didn't like it. So, and I wasn't going to put myself in a position where I, every day I didn't want to go out and play. And, and then, you know, traveling, if you're a traveling musician, it's, it's like the worst kind of life. I mean, somehow, these young kids today, they love it. You know, you, I don't know what to tell you. I hated traveling. Yeah. Well, we're glad you made it here, at least. I made it here. That was an amazing event that I made it here. When you, um, when you started arranging, it actually coincided with this so-called disco backlash, which, you know... Gamble and Huff, the Philly sound, had become quite closely associated with, even though I think that's also kind of a reductive way to talk about Gamble and Huff. They were much more than that. But much they, more than that. But they were swept up in this. What was it like to, to, to go through that? Well, I finally started arranging, and then all of a sudden, Disco Sucks came around. You know, So the, the whole sound of Philadelphia got put on a back burner because... Um, you know, I mean, it was a reaction. Well, you know, there was a lot of bad disco music, you know, just like there's a lot of bad music around all the time, you know. But And it seemed like people blamed the Philly sound. And the Philly sound, you know, as I told you, I, my living, all of a sudden I was making one-tenth of what I was making. And I had started arranging. And the arranging got put on the back burner for a while. And I ended up... I told you I was fortunate enough to end up, I met somebody from Sesame Street, and um, they found out who I was, and they listened to me. Children's pl- show, Sesame Chil- Street. Children's show. And I started writing songs for Sesame Street with a lot of the black artists that I grew up with in Philadelphia. But that's survival, you know? That's survival. That's it, working to survive. It was better than survival. I enjoyed it. You know, and as a matter of fact, I started doing it before the Sound of Philly ended, because when I used to go to the studio... Gamble, I would, get, I would go in and Gamble said, what'd you write for Sesame Street? Because he loved Sesame Street. And Tommy Bell said, can I get a job? I said, what are you asking me, can you get a job? But that was basically, they already knew that I was headed in 
working for children's television at that time. So what motivated you some years later to open your own studio in, in Philly? Well, you're taking a big gap. I am taking a big leap because okay. I need to condense a little bit. I, um, Gamble, Gamble always had me working through the 80s. And as a matter of fact, the 80s, I bought a Synclavier, which is um, a sampling like what you guys use, except it was one of the predecessors of what you use. And it actually had, um, back in 1983, it had two minutes worth of memory. And I could record a whole song in this box, background vocals, everything that I needed. And I actually started producing more those days. And mostly how I got into it was producing... In the 80s, there was a wave. The R&B wave ended up being a lot of teenage groups. Uh, New Edition was one of the most famous ones of the... But there were a lot of other... There was one in Philadelphia called the Whitehead Brothers. And they were John Whitehead, my dear friend who wrote Backstabber's Sons. And Gamble had me in the studio at night working on an album with him. And they were like 13 years old. So I started working on an album with them. And eventually, that album never came out. But I was at Sigma. And I was actually... And I was learning how to engineer. I was learning other trades. You know, I mean... I always had a little bit of knowledge, but I was not hands-on, but I became hands-on. And um, the culmination of this story was I did a lot of teenage R&B during that time, and it ended up with the Whitehead Brothers had a big hit record. Um, I think you know the year better than I do. I'm not going to remember the year, but I think it was almost 1990 or something like that. And a little bit before the Whitehead Brothers we got involved with Pop Art Records, which was one of the first early hip-hop labels in the United States. They had um, Fresh Prince and Jazzy Jeff. They had um, LL Cool J. They had Salt and Pepper. They had, I don't even remember how many different acts they had. Steady B, who was from Philly. Uh, Roxanne Chante. Roxanne Chante. They had um, Cooley C, who ended up in jail, and and Steady B, too. Yeah, they had a lot of records. So I ended up helping Lawrence Goodman, who owned Pop Art. I didn't produce those records, but I helped him with the music because he wasn't making any money from the samples. He was giving that money away back to the people who he borrowed from the samples. So what he would do, as I told you yesterday, he'd come in and play us a record and say, can you make something that's similar in feel? And, you know, and, and we did. And it was a cash job, you know, no names involved. And, you know, he would give us a G or whatever it was in those days, you know, for the record. And I got to meet all those, I got to meet all those young people then. Mm -hmm. And then after the Whitehead Brothers was a a big hit, all those people entered my life again. Because I had a little studio. I, I moved from Sigma. Sigma almost went bankrupt. And I moved from Sigma to another little, another studio and I had a little room there, and everyone just started showing up. I told you Rodney Jerkin showed up, and, and Jazzy Jeff. He was Jeff. He's not Jazzy, but Jeff showed up, and a lot of people showed up. Um, uh, the beginnings of the, a group called the Jazzy Fat Nasties showed up, which were well, one of the products that the Roots produced. So I, I, got, I started meeting a lot of the... By that time, let's see, how old was I? I must have been in my... 30s, like I'm, you know, late thir- getting to be my late 30s, and I felt like there was going to be a renaissance mm-hmm. of Philadelphia, mm-hmm. and I knew it was going to include some live. You know, there was no live. There was some live play. Michael Jackson ruled the waves in the 80s. His records, Quincy Jones was a genius, and those records they ruled the waves. But Jodeci was all live music, and some of these other records that were coming out was a lot. They were guitar players and bass players and maybe drum machine. Um, And I thought to myself, well, this is the way I was going to make the Whitehead Brothers record. That was first off. And including there was a song on the Whitehead Brothers record called Beautiful Black Princess that I was just piano and voice, and I put strings on, and people loved it. Mm -hmm. And I decided I didn't like the studio. I didn't like the owner of the studio. I was there, and so I thought okay, I don't have a lot of money, but whatever money I have, I'm going to try to find a place and I'm going to build a room that I want to build and it's going to be more of a hip-hop R&B kind of a room. So it got to the, it got to the point where it was 
the room was so loud, you could turn the volume up so much your ears could bleed. But the kids loved it. You know, that was more important. Loud was more important than good, even though it was good. But loud was very important. The first thing these young producers would do, they come in and the knob was there, and they turn it right to 10, you know, no matter what record was on. So, and that studio was got to be very successful. And Rodney Jerkins was one of the young producers that he came to He was one of studio. the young producers who came around. As a matter of fact, the first year we were open, or no, maybe it was the second year. Again, you know, I mean... Maybe I did too much drugs because I don't remember years and things like that at, at varying different It's okay, things. we have the internet for that. So. Right, well, the boy's, the boy's mind was, the record was made, the vocals weren't done in my room, but the record was made in, my stu in the studio. And you did the strings for this record, I did correct? the strings. The melody on this was like, um, it's like a theme, you know? It's like, like a Godfather theme or something. Da -da -dee -da 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 -dum. You know, it was like very Italian. And I thought it was really cool against, because the harp was classical, obviously, and I thought it was cool driving it against Brandy and Monica singing the way they end the bass, boom, 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 including with the breakdown, you barely hear it, but the cello's going, boom, 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 you know? It always ends up that strings are mixed so low, you know? It, they are It always mixed. bothers me, but it's not a <laughs> string record, so I don't know what I'm saying, you know? What do you think you learned from, I mean, besides, you know, the, the exuberance and the energy of, of the younger producers and artists that you were working with? Because this is really this chapter in your career where you're working with people of a different generation. What do you think you, you learned from them? I think it was both. They learned from me and I learned from them. You know, um, they just had a love for it. And, you know, when you have a love for music, that's something you share in common. It's, it's um, as when we were talking about my earlier career and they had the love, you know, I mean, and they were young and exuberant and stayed up all night. I would go in the morning and I would go in the studio seven or eight o'clock in the morning to work on arranging and they'd be there from the night before, you know, all crashed on the couches, you know, and the music was so loud you could hear it down the block. And I knew, you know, I tell people that was the first time I really knew I had a studio when I used to go in and see people sleeping there and had been there all night. Um, because that's how much they loved it. How would you describe the producer-arranger relationship? Well, with Rodney, I'd known him since he was 13. So that was a special relationship. You know, he called me, uh, he, had, he had nicknames for me, and, and he, it like was what? special. Like what? Uh, Lair Man was one of them, um, Philly Dude. You know, I mean, I don't even remember, you know. I represented the history of Philly music to him, though. You know, being in the room at the same time. You know, he would always ask, what do you think? What do you, you know? Mm -hmm. And I was free with my opinions. It was my studio, you know? Mm -hmm. So I was definitely free with my opinion. Rodney was the first of many young producers. But Rodney brought the roots to my studio. Right. Because when this record was so big, Amir, Questlove, he wanted a little bit of that... <laughs> So he sh they showed up, and James Poyser, who's another great young producer at the time, showed up, and I started building other little rooms to accommodate everybody that they had their own little studio. Just like I see this place has all these little rooms. and So my studio was, well, this was 98. So from 98 on, I started building these little rooms to the point where I don't own the studio anymore. Some other people own the studio, but... Amir still has a studio there. The Roots still have a studio there, even though they're in New York all the time. Amir has a record collection there of, you know, his record collection still at the studio. And then they, they introduced me to so many other people. As I told you before, Amir was so happy to be there and to be part of it, you know, that all of a sudden, um, you know, he would share me with whoever he could share me with. And um, I felt... Really, I felt really blessed that I had such good young friends, to be perfectly honest with you. I mean, that Philly neo-soul roots hip-hop scene from that era is, for a lot of people, I would imagine, you know, some of the people in this room, you know, that's like the Gamble and Huff era to a, a prior generation. I mean, that represents like, a, 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 you know, a really classic era. Well, the Roots' first album they did in my studio was Things Fall Apart. And there's interludes that I participated in. There's um, an interlude for um, called, see, I'm not going to remember all these titles, but Love of, 
love of my life. Love of my life. There was a that. I remember the melody, you know, that that I came up with, and they went crazy. And then I did a bunch of other arranging for that record, a little bit here and a little bit there. You got me has strings on it. Um, very subtle, though. It's it's very subtle. It's, it's tough to hear. Yeah, I mean, it's very subtle, and it was mixed too low. Bob Powers. <laughs> Don't want him to mention any names, but um, but sorry, yeah, Bob. Um, it could have been mixed louder. You know, I mean, that's all I'm saying. Um, I mean, but do you think also this is uh, to to actually mix the strings higher for that era is kind of a bold move too? Because I think they were was afraid. A, Look was, at yeah. Rodney's record. Look how low the strings are there. I think that they were afraid that I was going to like um, whitewash hip hop, you know, or something. You know, I don't even know, or clean it up, or I, I really don't know, but. What happened was, you know, within a few years, I had at my studio, Timberland, I had Pharrell, mm -hmm. I had, um, you know, I mean, I can't even, can't even remember all the names that came through, but um, the studio became a hotbed of, of what was creatively happening at that time. Mm -hmm. I mean, I did Jill's first record, where the strings you can hear. Right. It was just a great time. Um, and we, you know, we, we had a club. There was a club that featured, so every Tuesday night, it was like an open, I had electric cello, I used to come and play. See, that was the little bit of playing I did, and they loved it, you know, and, and Jill would get up and improvise, and everybody, and, and Amir would show up, and Tariq would get up, you know, I mean, it was fun. It was called the Hot Club, I guess, in Philly. At that, It burned down, it was so hot. Uh, you mentioned Timberland. Um... Timberland came to visit at the studio and stayed for like, a month and a half. He was only going to come for like a night. He had a bus outside, with had a studio in the back, and a bed, but a, a, a studio in the back, on the bus. And he came up. He came up, and we were having a party. It was it was around Christmas. It was like December, and he fell in love with the whole situation there. And um, he ended up staying for like six weeks. And then he probably went to another city and did the same thing. You know, I don't know what to say. But he, he would come back. I mean, I did Justin's first few records. And they came back. They even flew back. One, one time, Justin flew back with Cameron Diaz, who was his girlfriend. And she came to the session. That was sort of an interesting evening. Um, but um, I think we did what goes around that session. Um, do you have a preference in terms of material that you get? I mean, this is like, a, you know, you're... You're providing a, you're a craftsperson providing a service on some level, but also it's a creative endeavor. Um, is there a preference for you when you actually get the material in terms of subject matter, in terms of what it is? There's no real preference. I like to have at least a week to think about it. I don't like doing it on the spot. But, you know, to people like Timberland, they want it done then, you know. Oh, come on up with four musicians and, you know, and... Bring four musicians in, and we'll just sit around, and you just write something, you know? I mean, so I did. That happened on more than one occasion. Like, I don't like saying that I can do it overnight or in one day or something like that, because I like, first of all, I don't like having that kind of pressure. Um, but, like, flashing lights I did in one evening. Next day, I recorded it. Kanye just sent it to me, um, I think Kanye tried a, a ranger in California, and he didn't like what they did on that album. And I think what happened was someone mentioned my name to him, and he just sent it to me, and he said, can you get it to me tomorrow? I'm mixing it. You know, and I said, what do you mean get it to you tomorrow? You know, I mean, and he said, and I want a big string intro. You know, I, I said, okay, well, give me one day, and I'll record it the next day. And... Um, I think there were two or three songs that I did on that right. record. Right, the graduation so, record. You're right. So then you're pulling it together at the last minute. Do you have go-to people that you... Um, I have a string session that yeah. I've used. Yeah, as a matter of fact, one or two of the string players uh, I've known since the 80s. Mm -hmm. um, and the rest are young people, you know, from the schools. And, the, and, you know, and I'm always trying different people. And, but, yeah, I have a group of people that I use all the time. But that's, um, you know, in terms of, like, Kanye or any producer giving you a direction, I guess that's enough, right? I mean, I want a big string intro. He didn't even, he didn't even give me a direction. He just said, I want, I want a string intro on flashing lights, and 
that's all he said. And then, he's, and then he sent me those other songs, and I just did whatever I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And then I sent it to him, and, you know, he loved it, you know, so that was the end of that. And he you know, to the, the point, I think I did the next record, 808's an art beat with him, and I think I did the one after that, mm -hmm. you know. And then I even did another, when he proposed to Kim, he rented out, um, I think he rented out where the San Francisco Giants play. He rented out the, the, the ballpark, and he had an orchestra, and he proposed to... Um, he proposed to Kim, Kim's favorite song at the time was Born to Die, and I did a string arrangement of Born to Die. I Let did the string away, arrangement yeah. on Born to Die, but I did a, um, a string version completely of Born to Die. For the proposal. For the proposal, and that was, yeah. There was a 60-piece orchestra, just him on his knees, no one in the audience. There are pictures, you can go to the internet, I'm sure you can find it. Wow. And I, did, I didn't go, he didn't, invite, he, didn't, he didn't invite me to come and conduct You didn't me. get an invitation to the proposal? Nah, and you no. did the string arrangement? I sent the arrangement. Uh, that's gotta be disappointing. <laughs> it was bizarre enough that um, I would have probably gone, you know, I mean, but um, I, didn't, I didn't go. When you're working, um, I guess when you're working in, in the pop realm, you mentioned Lana Del Rey, and you've worked with... Well, Lana Del Rey, my hookup was Emil Haney, I told you that. Right. It comes from hip-hop. Right. Well, that's actually the other interesting thing, is like your career, and we were talking about this a little bit earlier, it's, it's all overlapped in a really organic way. I mean, people could look and say, okay, Gamble and Huff, you know, Neo Soul period, 2010s era, like pop music, um, and maybe see them as disparate groupings, but there is an overlap. I mean, the people who made these records also made these records and brought you in, which I think is an important thing to you know keep in mind. You know, it's easy to sort of stand back and look at something as being this is a genre, this is a genre, this is an era, but it's really the outgrowth of different communities. Yeah. I, I, I think you're right. And, and my approach is always, um, <laughs> I'm just adding Larry Gold at this point, you know, which is part Gamble, part Huff, part Bell, part classical music, part, you know, there's so many different parts that I don't break myself down. Mm -hmm. um, it's just, it's music, you know. I mean, the, the bottom line is um, I adore music. And as far as, technology and and how you embrace it um, well I tried to keep up as best as I could but it left me behind a little bit um, I don't really I I work still I, I work with my old computer the Synclavier still and I still use a lot of pencil and I still write an awful lot um, and I have a I have a young man that comes in he's not so young anymore but he copies it into the computer and then he shows it to me on the computer and I tell him what I want to change and and basically I guess he's my copyist and I always had a copyist but originally the copyist would work for my written score and now they work from either um, a tonal score or my written score or a computer score you know I mean it's those things changed mm -hmm. over the course of my lifetime You've chosen to stay in Philadelphia as well. Yes. My wife has taught school in Philadelphia. Uh, I've raised a daughter in Philadelphia. And um, maybe I should have moved at one point, but I lost that point. And I opened the studio, and the studio consumed... I, I guess I opened the studio around in 96 or something like that, 95. And it consumed my life until probably... I sold it about maybe seven years ago. So until 2011, I was involved in, on a day-to-day -day basis. And by, two, when, by the time 2011 rolled around, maybe we should have moved to California, but, you know, maybe shoulda, coulda, woulda. I was getting so much work just coming in over the phone and them sending me songs, and the Internet was playing up so much. I mean, to the point where if someone wants to hear what I'm doing, you know, we can have Skype, and I can sit there and, you know, 
play it for them or have it, you know, or send them. I don't like sending demos. I much rather play it for somebody on the phone and talk to them about it, you know, prior to bringing in live instruments. You're, you're 70 years old, as, as you mentioned. What haven't you done that you still would like to do? Well, I mean, yeah, I could name a zillion things that I'd like to do, <laughs> but whether life will let me do those things or not, um, you know, I, I've never done movies, per se. Um, I would love to do a little bit, you know, just to see. I'd love to work with some people, you know, that I, I like collaborating, and I don't get the chance anymore because everyone moved out of Philadelphia. I'm, I'm sort of left by myself a lot of the roots moved and Jill moved and everybody moved. And, you know, in life, you know, when you move to another area, you, you build new friendships and new things. So in one way, I feel like I've been left aside. And at certain times, I feel that way. But I'm also fucking 70 years old, you know. So, I mean, give me a break here, you know. I mean, most 70-year-olds don't even get out of bed, you know. So what they do. They do. But... I don't know what I, what I expect, you know. I think my expectations since I was a little boy have been way too high. But that's what drives me. Yeah. You know? The sort of last question I want to ask you is, you know, when you talk about strings bring, bringing a, a depth of feeling to a piece of music, it's, of course, the sound of the strings, you know, themselves. But the instruments don't play themselves, and the arrangements don't write themselves. These are from people. So what do you think it is within you as a person that brings out this depth of feeling? Where does your depth of feeling come from? I'm a pretty emotional dude. <laughs> you know, I could cry in a minute notice, you know. I mean, I'm just, that's the way I've been since I was little, you know. So um, the cello has always represented sadness to me. You know, I mean, I used to, when my daughter was little and we would watch movies or TV together, as soon as I heard the cello, I said, uh-oh, someone's going to die or someone's going to get sick. You know, and she was like maybe four years old and by the time she was six years old, she heard the cello and go, uh-oh. <laughs> you know, so, you know, it's a mournful instrument. You know, one of the great work, uh, you know, it's, 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 uh, I don't know what to tell you. It can also be a joyful instrument. Yeah. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to say it can't be. But, you know, like you said before, most of the time when people hire me to do an arrangement, the song's usually about someone breaking up or <laughs> someone's got fucked up somehow, you know. <laughs> um, so the strings sort of play, play right into that, yeah. into that situation. But I also, I, have a, I'm a, um, I pride myself on still being a hippie. And still being, you know, have an open mind and um, being loose about my life, even though it's pretty formal and tight. Um, but, I, but I do feel honored and blessed that I've had such a long, fruitful career. Well, we feel honored and blessed that you've been here with us today. So let's say thanks once again to Larry Gold. Thank you. You're too kind. I'm going to get verklempt. Hey, this is Jordan Rothline again. Thanks for listening to Couch Wisdom. Before you go, I just wanted to take a minute to tell you a little bit about the Red Bull Music Academy. The whole thing is a world-traveling series of music workshops and events. If you want to find out more, check us out at redbullmusicacademy.com. Also, if you liked what you heard on this podcast and you're not already subscribed, please go for it and consider rating us while you're at it. It really helps other people discover the podcast. Finally, there's a whole world of other great music programming like this to check out at redbullradio.com. That's all for now. Thanks for listening. <laughs>